the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches hello my name is richard moore i'm with daniel freeb hello richard hello daniel we meet again uh, a week or so Go after on. we said our goodbyes in santiago de compostela although you actually left without saying goodbye did i yes you did daniel i woke up set my alarm you left without paying my gone. hotel bill that <laughs> all became true. very contentious oh well we're, e- we're, e- we're equal then i've been kicking myself rich because having done our last episode and talked about the pilgrims of the camino de santiago our good friend who we spoke to many times on the vuelta luis angel mate embarked on a pilgrimage back home to marbella and i was looking for pilgrims to interview wasn't i on the sunday on the final sunday of the vuelta and that was one day when i didn't speak to luis angel he could have uh, he kept that quiet didn't he was, do you think it was a spontaneous he thing? He did. Well, Pavel Sivakov, one of our diarists, said that he wished the Vuelta had gone on for another week. He could have ridden home as well, um, but he didn't. And Luis Angel Mate has missed the opportunity to keep an audio diary for us for an episode of Explore. But never mind, we'll get him some other time. Um, speaking of Explore, we're also joined by the host of Explore, <laughs> Lionel Burney. Hello, Richard. Hello. Yeah. Hello, well, Lionel. Explore's been on an extended holiday hasn't it but uh, it will be coming back we've got some we've got some irons in the fire now haven't we well it's coming back very soon because we have got an audio diary from mark bowman who won the gb juro and that is being turned into an episode as we speak so uh, that'll be coming very soon and, and more episodes as well of explore but you were doing some exploration lionel around the uh, tour of britain you were you were there for i think the first half of the race at least how was it yeah, it was really good, Richard. Yeah, it's a long while since I've been out and about around Great Britain. And normally, well, ever since we started daily coverage of the Welter, the Tour of Britain and the Welter have completely clashed, haven't they? Whereas there was still an overlap. Uh, the first stage of the Tour of Britain was on the same day as the final stage of the Welter. But um, yeah, I had the opportunity to go for a few days and uh, really enjoyed it down in the west country first of all the first time the tour of britain has been in cornwall since the days of the milk race um and then worked its way up into devon and then round into wales and i have to say the stage that finished on the great orm in Chlandino was i thought outstanding a uh, really really great finish it was a sort of belgian classic meets a sort of breton stage of the tour de france almost and with a with a sort of uniquely welsh character as well and i suppose the takeaway jumbo visma won the race they won the hearts and minds of just about everybody who's ever been interested in cycling when pascal inkhorn gave a bid on to a young cyclist who was keeping up with the break on one of the stages he handed a bid on to him but looking at the the way the race shaped up in the end with Wout van Aert winning very difficult on British roads I think to van Aert proof a tour of Britain time bonuses and punchy little climbs are basically his bag aren't they uh, so yeah van really artification was it van artification Daniel does that does that um what what do we call a race that can't be van art proofed the tour of britain <laughs> <laughs> excellent that's one Possibly. for the uh, what, what's the, the the cycling podcast almanac or something where we invent words what what's one of those books well we'll get back to you on that we'll have to get our our brains uh, working it, it looked it looked great the tour of britain not always blessed by good weather is it and it was lucky with was lucky with weather and and some you know some major stars i think it made that that helped make the make the race um as enthralling as it was it all kind of seemed to fall into place and i guess well we'll talk about the tour of britain in the first part won't we but i think the the, t- the team uh, at the tour of britain deserve a lot of credit for putting the the race on um in the way that it did because they missed a year last year of course because of covid and you know I think it must have been very, very difficult to organise and put on the Tour of Britain this year. And they've got the Women's Tour coming up in a few weeks as well. And I think what happened last week augurs well for that. So well done, Mick Bennett and the team, I guess, at the Tour of Britain. We will be talking about Tour of Britain in the first part. um, And then we'll be talking about the European Road Race Championships, a really exciting men's race there. 
And in the final part, we'll be uh, looking ahead to the World Championships a little bit and talking about some of the the transfer comings and goings. Um, but before all that, have you got a news roundup for us, please, Lionel? Yeah, well, I'll start with the Tour of Britain. As I said, Wout van Aert won overall. Um, he took four of the stages on the way as well and uh, clinched it on the final day with the time bonus in Aberdeen. Uh, traded the leader's blue jersey with Ineos Grenadiers rider Ethan Hayter. Uh, Ineos Grenadiers won the team time trial, which put Hayter into the lead for the first time. Van Aert then took the lead at, gr- at the Great Orm and then Hayter benefited well, he won the stage in Warrington, but he also benefited from the fact that Van Aert was caught behind the crash on the run in there. And then he held the lead for two days, um, but couldn't quite see the job through right at the end. Uh, probably always up against it just because uh, Van Aert was the, the quickest sprinter in the race and he was hoovering up those time bonuses. But as you say, Rich, it was a really enthralling edition of the Tour of Britain this year, I think. And as you, as you also said, the fact that... Uh, you know, COVID cancelled it last year. Um, it, you know, Britain is not the easiest place in Europe to put on a stage race um, just because of the, the density of population and, and um, you know, the, the difficulty of funding the whole thing. So, yeah, um, well done to Mick Bennett and co for getting the race on this year. Um, the European Championships were in Trento in Italy and Sonny Colbrelli followed up his uh, recent overall win in the Benelux Tour where he'd beaten Matej Mohoric by winning the road race. Uh, he was part of a nine-man break that had some real power in it. He had his Italian teammate Matteo Trentin in there, but also Tour de France champion Tadej Pogacar, Mark Hershey, Pavel Sivakov, Benoit Cosnefroy, and Remco Evenepoel. And that break whittled down as they went over the climb of the Povo and uh, until it was the three left out in front, Evenepoel, Colbrelli and Cosnefroy and then finally it was uh, just down to those two, Colbrelli and Evenepoel when uh, that they dropped the Frenchman on the final time up the climb with about 12 kilometres to go and then it came down to the two up sprint and the Italian had it um, I don't know whether you guys were surprised there uh, that Colbrelli beat Evenepoel or whether you're expecting the Belgian to do it but uh, yeah a big win for Colbrelli and the fourth consecutive win for Italy in the European Championship road race after Trentin, Elia Viviani and Giacomo Nizzolo in recent years. That silver medal was Evenepoel's second of the week and it was an upgrade on the bronze he won in the time trial. The time trial was won by Switzerland's Stefan Kung and Italy's Filippo Ganna was second there. The women's road race was won by Ellen van Dijk. She uh, launched a, an impressive solo break and won gold ahead of Germany's Leanne Lippert, who led in the chasers over a minute back. Um, the Dutch have dominated the women's European Championship road race in a similar way to the Italians in the men because the Dutch have won five out of the six elite women's road races at the Euros. Van Dijk also won silver in the time trial behind Marlon Reusser of Switzerland. Some other important racing news, particularly relevant with the World Championships and Paris-Roubaix coming up. Uh, Matthew van der Poel won his first road race since the Tour de France and perhaps more crucially since his crash in the mountain bike race at the Olympic Games in Japan where he injured his back. He won the Antwerp Port Classic ahead of Taco van der Horn and although he's not 100% for the Worlds and Paris-Roubaix he says um, he wants to see how his back responds and he hopes to race three more times in quick succession before the World Championship road race. Uh, which is based in Leuven in Belgium. Uh, one other one-day race, the Grand Prix Formies in France, won by Elia Viviani. Um, some transfer news, which you may be able to add to. Well, just on the eve of the Tour of Britain, Dan Martin announced that he would be retiring. Um, he turned pro for Slipstream way back in 2008, and uh, he is uh, yet seeing out the rest of the season with Israel Startup Nation, uh, Odd Christian Eiking is going to EF. Um, he led the welter for a week. And a few other moves that have been confirmed. Ben Tullet from Alpecin to Ineos. Uh, Max Cantor from DSM to Movistar. Ugo Ofstetter from Israel to Arkea. And I think, Daniel, you said David de la Cruz is going from UAE Team Emirates to Astana. Strongly rumoured, I think, that gets filed away as at the moment. And I suppose the other 
big name whose future is uncertain is Miguel Angel Lopez after he abandoned the welter at the pretty much the last moment in pretty dramatic circumstances. The rumours have been swirling that he will be going back to Astana, but we will discuss that in the third part of today's podcast. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Well, a new message there from Super Sapiens, our title sponsor, and we're extremely grateful to them for all their support. Um, As you heard there, Super Sapiens is launching its first wearable device, the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibraSense Glucose Sport Biosensor, the uh, little device that you wear on your upper arm. It's the only way to get minute-by-minute glucose data without needing a phone within Bluetooth range. Designed specifically for athletes, the energy band can be worn on the wrist or attached to your handlebars and it syncs directly with the biosensor via Bluetooth and shows your minute-by-minute glucose levels. Um, So you can keep uh, tabs on that while you're out training. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available for sale now at supersapiens.com for €159. Um, So that's a very exciting development for Super Sapiens and we are very pleased to have them as our title sponsor. Thank you very much to them. Uh, the Tour of Britain then, chaps, um, it was a race that really caught my attention. I mean, I, I came home from the Vuelta. There was that little overlap, as you said, Lionel. It was a, it was a great field that they had put together. Uh, you know, a, a kind of um, a, a mix and, and, and match, really, of some World Tour teams and some British domestic teams and one or two con- uh, pro-continental teams from uh, abroad, although they're called pro teams now, aren't they? And that that combination seemed to work really well you know you had your Julian Alaphilippes and your Wout Van Arts and your Mark Cavendishes um, to give the race real star quality give it some sparkle uh, and you had these teams and these riders who were for whom this was a massive massive opportunity there was something for everybody there was something at stake for everybody it seemed to me and and some great stories you know Robin Carpenter's stage win the, the breakaways the riders who you know they weren't meaningless breakaways for those riders or teams there was a lot at stake in this race and and partly that's because we didn't have a tour of britain last year there would seem to be a lot riding on this one both from an organization point of view and for a lot of the teams and the riders and it all worked really well great weather um fantastic stages um it looked great it it was a it was a it was a brilliant race to watch on the telly last week yeah, and I think the atmosphere out on the course and at the starts and finishes really made it as well. You mentioned the weather, and I mean, I've been on the Tour of Britain in the past when uh, the weather has not been particularly kind. I mean, there was a bit of rain here and there. It's uh, Britain in uh, September, but um, the crowds were big. Um, the atmosphere was great. I mean, you know, right from the start, really, the, the, the finish into Bodmin uh, really set the tone because it was a sort of town centre finish uphill made for Wout van Aert of course um, but the crowds were out and uh, you know it felt like uh, you know obviously Britain like everywhere has been um, you know uh, sort of almost locked indoors for, for so long because of Covid it did feel like uh, people were sort of shaking that off as, as much as anything and uh, yeah just great to see people riding out to all the, the points on the course I was traveling with uh, Simon Gill our photographer friend so I wasn't doing the sort of conventional um, start and finish every day we were we were heading out onto the course to go and see it um, the first day in Cornwall was pretty murky um, the sun didn't really shine until we got to Bodmin's uh, but it lent even the Cornish hills and countryside as quite a sort of haunting quality um, the stage into Exeter over Dartmoor was fantastic as it always is and just again I suppose I was sort of uh, enjoying the sunshine and 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 crowd watching and and waiting for the race uh, just like the spectators and just seeing the uh, the, the excitement build as the, the helicopter came overhead and the, the the advanced motorcycles were were clearing the the cattle out of the road and onto the onto the moor so that the the race could speed past safely 
um it just, yeah it just felt very 3d experience i suppose maybe that's just my perspective because i've been at home so much uh, this year i've not been at the the grand tours as much as you guys have um but yeah i really enjoyed it and as i said i think the great orm you know is a keeper uh, any bike race in the world could finish up there and you would get uh, a great finish um you know it was the sort of climb that uh, you could slot into a, a one-day classic and and have a have a brilliant race and so credit to the um to the organizers for not only finding it but you know getting the 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 the, the people who need to give permission for such things to happen on side so that it could happen um and in terms of the actual race itself uh, ethan hater i thought was the revelation of the week really i wasn't entirely sure um how good a climber he would be uh, i thought the great orm might um, you know be the end of his overall challenge but it wasn't at all you know he's right up there on the shoulders of van art and alaphilippe um and that meant over the last three days of the race um it was nip and tuck whether hater would hold on or whether van art would find a way and in the end that sprint finish into Aberdeen it was just a little bit of perhaps poor positioning or just in the wrong place got boxed in a bit didn't he hater he needed to finish second or third um to hold off van art um but uh it wasn't to be and van art got the time bonus and as he put it won the stage ahead of two legends andre greipel and mark cavendish so yeah it was a race that had everything including cavendish up the road in a break and being typically cavendish wasn't he on that stage stage six you know getting frustrated that the 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 motorbike was um you know in in the wrong position you know uh, helping the race influencing the race and and um perhaps aiding the chase not perhaps something that he would have complained about too often um you know if the boot was on the other foot and he was in the bunch i don't know oh harsh i understand last week mark cavendish <laughs> mark cavendish introduced junior alaphilippe to hp source and cottage pie and he was very enthusiastic alaphilippe about both of those items i that'll be the, that'll be the end of alaphilippe then yeah <laughs> yeah um what happened Julian? I, I discovered hp source in the autumn of in <laughs> the autumn the of 2021 um, it was interesting to see Hater, wasn't it, sandwiched in between those two riders, Van Aert and Junior Alaphilippe, because, you know, not that this is particularly necessary, but it's the kind of sort of speculation we like to indulge in to sort of think about if he has, if he's going to have a sort of analogue, whether it's going to be more an Alaphilippe type rider, a, a puncher, climber, I suppose, or a, a sort of sprinter puncher, which is what Van Aert is effectively. I mean, he's, he's very similar in some respects to both of those two, but there's probably, I'm probably forgetting someone, there's probably a better equivalent um, who wasn't riding at the Tour of Britain, someone, you know, a world-class rider, uh, maybe a Peter Sagan, but uh, he's certainly someone who, well, he looks as though he's going to be a major, major factor in classics races, certainly for the next few years i don't know whether he's i don't know whether he thinks he's going to be more of a, a cobbled classics rider or a hilly classics rider i mean increasingly these young riders that we're seeing emerging are, are sort of defying confounding the old categories attempts to categorize them and pigeonholes that we've traditionally kind of used and yeah i mean he's he's come through the 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 track uh program as well isn't he just back from uh just back from Tokyo and well we spoke to him just after he'd returned from Tokyo and I think he was unsure uh about you know how how his track form would translate onto the road and it was still uncertain then whether he would go to the the world championships I think there might be a, a chance now that they even sent him to Paris Bay uh, after the world championships to to try him out in that race um but he's he's clearly in, in terrific form I think uh, my impression was that he seemed quite surprised to find himself in that company too but you mentioned Great Orm, uh, Lionel. I mean, yeah, the spectators who were there, and it produced a great shot from from Simon Gill up there. You know, any any if you go to a bike race and you you witness the the race being decided on the climb between Wat Van Aert and Julian Alaphilippe, you're you're being treated to the the best spectacle that cycling can offer really at the moment. So that was that was terrific to watch, and you know the the um. The, the boast that Mick Bennett always makes about the race is that it's it's a, an exciting race because of the small teams, you know, six-man teams, which in many cases were reduced by crashes or other things going on. Um, 
it did produce quite a compelling spectacle on the on the final stage in particular, which might not have been compelling, uh, a breakaway away and a uh, a chase behind. But the chase was was complicated by the fact that Yumba Visma had only what four riders left at that point, and one of them was George Bennett for the the chase on the flat to bring quite a quite a strong break back they had a they had help obviously from the kind of quick set but they also had to manage their resources pretty carefully so it, it did that that was another little ingredient i think that made the the week and the racing more exciting yeah just on ethan hater before we move on i mean when i said i thought the great or might be his undoing that was just because i'd walked up the climb and there was a particular section where simon gill's photo was taken um and it's a picture of van art and alaphilippe predominantly as they enter this uh, right hand bend which is really very steep um i thought that that might be a bit much for him but we, you know we forget that uh, or i'd rather forgotten until he mentioned it when i spoke to him after one of the stages that um Last year, he crashed at Gent-Wevergham, which, of course, was at the end of the season uh, because of COVID, and uh, broke his leg and, and uh, I think, tore his ankle ligaments. And so, you know, that's not a, a simple um, thing to come back from. And then, of course, his whole summer was based around um, the Olympic Games and, and the team pursuit. And so, you know, I was just a bit unsure whether he would uh, transition back from uh, the track to the road but when you look at his results over the course of this season it has been very impressive um, particularly in, in stage races he was fourth at the uh, Coppi e Bartoli stage race back in March he was second in the Volta al Algarve he was seventh in the Ruta del Sol he won the Tour of Norway and then just before the Tour of Britain he was fourth in the Breton Classic uh, one day race behind Cosnefroy, Alaphilippe and Honoré. So clearly in fantastic form. Um, and, you know, Ineos Grenadiers had the resources to try and take it to um, Jumbo Visma. And I thought they, they rode a very smart week. But as you say, Rich, the, the thing about, um, you know, the, the, the feeling at the end of the race when you um, reach the conclusion and think, yeah, that was a really good week's racing. It, the icing and the cherry on the top is the fact that it was... You know, Wout van Aert, Julian Alaphilippe, both on the podium. And when you look at the most recent winners of the Tour of Britain, the last three winners, Van Aert, Van Der Poel and Alaphilippe. I mean, you can't mm. really say fairer than that. The, the only thing Ineos could have maybe done on the final day is put Rowan Dennis in that breakaway. And that would have that would have complicated the, the chase. Um, although um, putting someone in a breakaway makes it sound a lot easier than, than it is in reality. Now, Lionel, you weren't you weren't just there on a mini break, were you? You weren't there on holiday, gallivanting around. You were, you were putting, you were recording things. Uh, you remembered your recorder, and you you are making a, a friend special episode. I am, yeah. It's not going to quite be just the story of the race. It's going to be notes uh, from a small uh, island. I have few. There's no, a, you've got well, you've I got a sort of Bryson ask air about you. <laughs> I don't want to run into trouble with Bill Bryson's publishers and uh, over the copyright. No, I'm not going to call it notes from a small island, but certainly I was out. I was doing what a tough work. notes from a small island. <laughs> I was doing the tough work, Rich, you know, sampling Cornish pasties and uh, cream teas. Here, in Julian, Welsh Julian come over here and try Cornish pasty. <laughs> yeah, introduced him to HP Source. Um, I, I suppose my one regret is that because because of circumstances, I wasn't able to go all the way to Aberdeen. I would have loved to have, um, uh, once I got into the race, it was, you know, it was great to be on the road and to, um, you know, to see Britain changing as much as, as the race unfolding. Um, Getting better. But, well, as it headed towards Scotland. I know, uh, Rich, I bailed out. Yeah, before, they saved the best till last. Bit. The yeah, last sorry, two stages. Sorry about that, Scotland. I'm a bit o for two on Scotland this year, aren't I? But I will hope, hopefully, make amends for that in twenty. What have you got against Scotland, Lionel? <laughs> Nothing at all. Anyway, no, but um, I'm making. I'm going to make a friend special. I think to put out once the racing season ends and kind of the the memories of the week have kind of faded a little, and uh, hopefully bring them vividly back to life again. But I think we can hear one interview that you did with uh, Dan Martin riding his last Tour of Britain because as you said he he's announced I think a, an announcement that surprised a few people um, that he would retire at the end of the season because he's, he's had you know he's a good season hasn't he, he won a stage at the at the Giro 
Um, but this will be his last season. So shall we hear from Dan Martin now? How are you doing, Dan? How do you feel after your announcement yesterday and the, the news is public that you're retiring at the end of a long and very successful career? I don't know. It's weird. It's just, it's obviously I've known deep down for a while, I think, and it was just a, a long decision process. But yeah, I, it was really important for me to do it before this race because I think it's, uh, yeah, obviously I started well in 2008 here and basically racing on home, what's effectively home roads for me as well and, uh, and yeah I also knew that all you guys would be asking me what I was doing next year I, I don't like <laughs> I don't like keeping secrets so it's uh, so yeah I mean it's it, it feels special to be able to I mean even that reaction I mean to do a race again we've raced so long this year with no public and to have that reaction again now and be able to race on home roads with, that, with so many people on the side road and see so many people who've been important in my cycling career already this week in the organisation and all the people around this race it's a uh, yeah the UK has obviously been a, played a huge part in my formative years and, and, and still does what made you realise that the time was right now because I mean you've won a stage in the Giro in really impressive style you, you know you could still go on but you've decided now's the right time I always wanted to stop when I was on top and also I think it's also very important for me personally to I, I felt that my motivation and my commitment was was starting I didn't know was starting to slip you know the sports the professionalism and the intensity of the sport has just increased so much that I've really noticed the last couple of years now we people don't see that what it takes to be that competitive to be at that level and you basically have to live like a monk at home you know you don't have a life and I've been that I've held that 100% focus the last two years that's what's enabled me to be yeah get back to winning the Grand Tour stages again and I just kind of thought you know what I've, I'm I just want to do something else in my life now. You know, that's the simple thing. It's, it's, it's. Uh, I've got full affirmation for all the guys who maintain that focus and dedication. But uh, for me personally, it's just uh, I don't want to ride around half ass And I, I owe it to the people on the side of the road, to myself, and yeah, to the team and sponsors that I'm not just going to sign a contract and just ride around. I'm, I want to be winning till the end of my career. Lastly, for me, I don't know if you remember, but way back in 2007, just after you'd signed your first contract or agreed to join Slipstream. I came up to the Midlands and rode around with CC Giro with you and we had a chat about you going into the pro peloton. I mean, if you could go back and think then, you know, you'd achieve everything you'd have achieved in this cycling career, how would you have felt then to know how it would pan out, do you think? It's funny because I think everybody knows, they know I didn't have any expectation coming into the sport, you know, and even now, like, I don't, to go into the day stage, I have no expectation, I just want to do my best and that's that's how you get over defeat and victory like you have to reset your mind after every day of racing and so I haven't really thought about what I've achieved I think it's just uh, but yeah it's true I mean I've mean, never back then I mean if you had told me what I'd win the race that I have it's like yeah it's pretty unreal really you know so yeah it's kind of crazy how time flies I mean that's something for all the young riders there you know it's like time just enjoy every single moment every single victory because uh, it does it does pass very very quickly well yeah as you heard there I mean I was surprised uh, Richard because he won a stage of the Giro this season you know it's not like he's he's tailing off at all uh, he was seventh in the Tour of Britain he and Mike Woods were a pretty handy tandem but perhaps needed a couple more great Orm-esque style stages for for them to really have uh, you know the opportunity to um, put uh, the the pressure on Wout van Aert but when you look back at a career that includes two stages of the Tour two stages of the Welter a Giro stage Liège Baston Liège and Il Lombardia I mean a really uh, impressive um, career for Dan Martin um, who started off obviously as a as a British junior and has become uh, you know an Irish legend yeah, I would echo that, Lionel. Um, I mean, we've all known Dan for a long time. I first interviewed Dan in the 2008 Tour of Portugal, believe it or not. Um, he was riding for Garmin at the time. He was Irish champion. And they were sort of sent like lambs to the slaughter to this Volta a Portugal, which was full of the the sort of cast-offs of Operacion Puerto, Mancebo, Sevilla. Um, it was a sort of infamous edition of the race for that reason. But Dan finished 10th, I think, that year. And he'd also won the Route du Sud that year and was clearly uh, you know, incredibly talented from the word go um, when he started as a professional rider. And, you know, for a guy who didn't have one obvious, you know, superpower he wasn't the best climber um, he wasn't a fantastic time trialist you know the world tour calendar 
caters to a certain up to a point um, for guys like that and you know he had to for his big wins look for look at races like Liège-Bastogne-Liège Tour of Lombardy you know the, the hardest one day races on the calendar really and he managed to pull off those two well wins in both of those and also complete his collection as you said this year of Grand Tour stage wins plus you know other prestigious races like the Volta Catalunya when he raced there he was sort of racing on home roads but was because of that under slightly more pressure and you know most of the time Dan Dan delivered for his teams on a consistent basis and he was also uh, we should add a real delight to deal with um, from our point of view in the media he was someone who was incredibly professional very accessible and um, always very generous with his time so I think we'll all miss him and uh, well I've thinking back to when I first met Dan Martin it was 2007 towards the end of the year and he was well I was invited I was working for Cycling Weekly at the time and I was invited up to CC Giro a club in uh, the Midlands which um, was basically uh, Dan and Neil Martin's club or one of their clubs and we went for a sort of a group ride and and it just that came back to my mind this week when he'd announced his retirement and uh, made me look up his dad's results, Neil Martin, was a professional rider. He rode the 1987 Kellogg's Tour of Britain for the Percy Bilton team. Um, those who remember cycling in the 80s, that, that will all mean something to you. But uh, yeah, quite. I suppose that was why he made his announcement. Well, it was why he made his announcement on the eve of the race. And certainly down in Penzance, when he was announced to the crowd, he got a, a, an incredibly warm reception. Yeah, my can I just add, add a, a, another memory of Dan Martin, a much more recent one, and it's from the Tour de France this year when the race went to Andorra. Um, he was quite prominent on that stage, but he was more than that very emotional at the finish because his family had been out. He lives in Andorra. His wife and twin girls um, have become uh, you know a, a bigger and bigger part of his life, obviously. And I think my sense that day was that you know he'd found it quite tough even just racing on these home roads and seeing his family out by the roadside. So I said I was surprised he retired, but seen in that context, maybe not so much because, uh, yeah, I got the sense that he uh, felt the pull of family quite a lot. But, I mean, you mentioned all his achievements, Daniel, and it's hard, you know, he's one of these riders who can retire probably quite satisfied that he really has done all that he could do with his talent. You know, he's, he's won all the races that he probably could have won. And there aren't maybe many riders who, who can who can head into retirement having done that. It, it feels churlish to it feels churlish and slightly unfair to mention one race. The one the only I'm not going to call it a big miss because uh, you know he performed brilliantly in this race time and time again. But it, it almost surprised me that he never managed to win uh, Flesh Wallon, and that was purely because. Uh, he encountered a couple of riders at different times who were absolute masters at the Mudahui, um, those riders being Valverde, um, you know, about whose victories you can have, you know, you can have misgivings. Um, and Alaphilippe, who as well, you yep. know, he, so, he came on. Uh, I, take, I take it all back. <laughs> he, he, was, he can was head it. into retirement with, with a, with a, a, a Mudahui-sized mountain of regret. <laughs> well, if he chased off into retirement by that panda or thought of that panda, <laughs> it will haunt him into retirement. I, I read mean, someone uh, suggesting that he now in retirement has to go back to Liège-Bastogne dressed as a panda. <laughs> For those who don't remember that far back, the 2013 Liège-Bastogne-Liège, which was the one that Dan Martin won, uh, a spectator got onto the course dressed as a, in a full um, head-to-toe panda outfit. I, 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 always, an image. I always think about him because in Berlin, one of the main food delivery companies is called Food Panda. So you've got all these chaps riding around with these enormous square cool boxes on their back with pictures of pandas on the back. And I always think of Dan Martin when I see them. That said, PK interrupting this week's episode to remind us to tell you that it is sponsored by LinkedIn Jobs. Now, if you're a small business owner and you're looking to employ somebody, it can seem quite daunting, not to mention time consuming. But this is where LinkedIn Jobs can be absolutely invaluable, especially if you're looking for somebody with very specific skills or experiences. We know this ourselves, having used LinkedIn Jobs to find a Spanish-speaking audio producer for our new sister podcast, El Cycling Podcast. 
Having been scratching our heads, wondering how on earth we would find the right person, suddenly, having posted on LinkedIn Jobs, within a few days, we had over 50 applicants and more than 15 really strong candidates. We eventually settled on one who, 17 episodes into El Cycling Podcast, hosted by Lyra Messiger and Rob Hatch, continues to do a great job. You can, with LinkedIn Jobs, create a free job post in minutes to reach your network and beyond to the world's largest professional network with over 30 million people in the UK. Focus on candidates with the skills and experience you need. Use screening questions to get your role in front of only the most qualified people. And then use the simple tools on LinkedIn Jobs to quickly filter and prioritize who you'd like to interview and hire. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the candidates worth interviewing faster and you can post a job for free. Just visit linkedin.com slash cycle. Again, that's linkedin.com slash cycle to post a job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, we mentioned in the last part that we've got a friend special uh, from your gallivanting around Tour of Britain coming up. We've got a few more friend specials coming too. Been a bit quiet on that front uh, over the summer while We've been producing so many episodes from the Grand Tours, etc. But we've got a few episodes uh, coming up soon. Um, one issue that some of you may have encountered is that not all of the auto renewals have been going through. So if you signed up as a friend of the podcast roughly about a year ago, um, the, the you should auto renew. But that has been failing for quite a lot of people. And that, I think, Lionel, is due to new banking regulations in the uk isn't it it is indeed rich yes um i don't know the full ins and outs of this uh, at the moment we're investigating but it is the case that any renewals going through at the moment may run into difficulty and be declined and if they're declined obviously you lose access to your friends of the podcast episode so um just log in at the cyclingpodcast.com go to the top right corner and where it says um subscribe as a friend of the podcast you can click on that and it will it will take you through to where you can log into your account and just update your card details um, or sign up again if you are a lapsed member. And as you said, Rich, um, we've got some episodes coming. I'll make my tour of Britain extravaganza to go out after Paris-Roubaix, I think. Have you got anything in the pipeline at the moment? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, one uh, on the World Championships. So I'll be going to the World Championships next week in Flanders and as well as reporting on the race and the regular the races and the regular episodes we will um I'll, I'll i'll try and sort of get under the skin a little bit of the the current state of flanders cycling you've obviously done the the, the lionel of flanders telling us all about the history and, and the culture around cycling there but i'm going to try and try and um you know find out what's what's happening there now especially as you know the, the, there's been a lot of uh hype expectation hope invested in these world championships being in flanders and um but it's been a very difficult time for everywhere but in flanders in particular a lot of the races last year were behind closed doors effectively um so they're hoping for big crowds and international crowds as well but i'll be interested to see to what extent that happens um so yeah it'll be a bit of a roadside experience at the world championships as well next week We've also got introducing introducing Lionel Burney to come out at some point. Needs to be heavily oh, edited. Loads of bits need to be redacted. redacted. Yeah, exactly. There'll be sort of just minutes of silence in that one, just where stuff that can't go out will um, <laughs> no. It, we'll, we'll knock it into some kind of shape and uh, put that out after Paris Roubaix at some point. There, I've committed to it now. Just just ten months after it was recorded, Rich. Brilliant. Um, listen. Uh, Another thing I should mention is we've got a new episode, Service Course, with Lizzie Banks, Tom Wally. That was released today. That's Monday as we record. It is an absolutely brilliant episode. Um, I absolutely loved it. It includes, it's a kind of crossover with Explore because Lizzie Banks went to All Points North, uh, a race that's not a race over a thousand kilometers, and she meets some of the riders as, as they start and finish. It's a great listen. She's also spoken to Martina Alzini. Italian member of the Team Pursuit team at the Olympics and Tom's got a report from Eurobike so loads in service course there'll be another episode of service course next week as well during the World Championship week we'll also have an episode of the Cycling Podcast Femina Life in the Peloton and the regular episodes so lots to come next week before this glut of friends specials um, we're moving on from the Tour of Britain but you mentioned Xander Graham uh, Lionel the the, the kid who was handed the bead on by Pascal Enkhorn. Lots of calls for Pascal Enkhorn to be awarded a Peddler de Charme 
uh, mug. Um, I think Stacy Snyder would love to do that, so maybe we'll try and facilitate that. It was it was a spontaneous gesture, wasn't it? And it was well done by Pascal Enkhorn, um, and it had an amazing response, uh, which I'm sure he never anticipated. Um, but we uh, had the European Championships last week as well, so it's slightly strange timing. I was interested to see that there was no British team there. That may have been a partly because of the clash with the Tour of Britain um, and a resources thing and a timing thing with the World Championships coming up. Um, but the men's road race was a real humdinger and it, it really did um, uh, merit watching from a good couple of hours out. If you haven't seen it, you can watch it on catch-up, maybe on your GCN player. It, it was a it was a great race and a, a fascinating battle in the end between Remco Evenepoel and Sonny Colbrelli. Um, my uncle used to have a, a, a little dog that um, when you went to visit his house uh, used to cling around your ankle and no matter what you did you couldn't shake it off um, that reminded me that, that image flashed into my mind as I watched uh, Evenepoel try to ride Colbrelli off his wheel up the climb uh, Chaps, Colbrelli quiz, was quiz question yeah, quiz yeah. question for you not, not what the name of what your was uncle's name? dog called um what does uh, who's the odd one out between pavel tonkov stefano pirazzi lars bohm and remco evenepoel is this Any a ideas? gesture uh something to do with that only a gesture yeah remco so uh, i mean i i feel um slightly guilty for bringing this up because um, I think it was a, a gesture that was directed at nothing in particular it was general frustration rather than as it might have seemed initially at Sonny Colbrelli but Remco did the gesture known in Italy as well literally doing the umbrella which is you sort of put um, one hand in the kind of hollow of your elbow and sort of well it's kind of up yours gesture isn't it um, and various riders have done this in races, but in all of the other cases, all the other riders I mentioned, they've done it to celebrate race wins. Pavel Tonkov in the Giro in 2004, Stefano Pirazzi in the Giro in 2014 when he won in Vittorio Veneto, and then Lars Bohm at Eneco Tour in 2017. But there's, they're, they're, they, they, they sort of, there are certain, there's a certain implication that comes with it of it's not just a celebration, is it? It's also you know take that yeah, up yours. Yeah, there's yeah. a yeah. I mean, it's a it's a fairly aggressive gesture, and but I was it, didn't, it, it looked like yeah, Evan the pool was not was not very happy. I think it was frustration. Yeah, because I, I was I was reassured in. by his comments afterwards. He was pretty magnanimous. I mean, as usual, you know. There were people ready to sort of call him a spoiled brat and saying he was being petulant and this was disgraceful and there were a lot of, you know, Italians online who were pretty upset because it is a very offensive gesture, actually, as far as Italians are concerned. But, as I say, I think he was pretty generous in his praise of Colbrelli and he completely understood that Colbrelli being the faster sprinter but the inferior, nominally inferior climber and certainly that you know he wasn't the guy who was attacking repeatedly on the climb then Colbrelli was entitled to just try and cling on um sink his teeth into Remco's ankles and just you know hang it was there like he was motor pacing yeah he was motor pace and that's not to not to suggest anything at all about Remco Evenepoel just that you know Evenepoel's one chance of winning was to 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 ride them off his wheel which is a really hard thing to do um, not you know not to he doesn't have the jump to have attacked him repeatedly. It was just that he he had to just you know just just grind it out and try somehow to to distance him as he did with Cosnefoy. Uh, but Colbrelli clearly in fantastic form managed to just just about hang on. Yes, Richie. Well, he's having the season of his career. Uh, Colbrelli, of course, Italian national champion. Same the same sequence of events um, that Giacomo Nizzolo enjoyed last year wasn't it he became Italian national champion then European national champ uh, sorry European champion and therefore didn't really get to wear the Italian national champions jersey very much but Colbrelli of course I mean he was one of the stars of the Tour de France wasn't he without winning a stage and then won the Enico Tour he was actually he actually wanted to go to the Vuelta but he was sort of convinced by his team that the Enico Tour would be a better idea and you know ball accounts he's 
well, he's lost weight this year. He's become a much, much less of a pure sprinter, actually more of a climber. You know, I said earlier in the, in the episode, um, I wondered who Ethan Hayter might resemble, might come to resemble, might already resemble. And Sonny Corbrelli is actually not a bad match, is he? Um, you know, a, a, a sort of a sprinter who can, who can certainly climb and he's quite punchy, um, uphill, but yeah, Colbrelli's a rider who is who is changing, evolving, becoming better and better. He's 31 now and has become one of the top performers for well, a Bahrain victorious team that's having just a, an extraordinary season. And I was speaking to Rod Ellingworth actually about um, Colbrelli at the Vuelta. Ellingworth, of course, has left Bahrain. He's no longer the team principal there. But he said that you know, in the previous 18 months or so, Colbrelli was someone who had really embraced a sort of new way of working in that team. And by all accounts, Rob, Rolf Aldarg arriving in that team at the start of this season has also had a big impact on various different riders. Colbrelli might well be one of them. But he now becomes, I guess, one of the favourites for the World Championship Road Race, doesn't he? I mean, there's certainly nothing there in terms of climbing, length of climbs that would be prohibitive for Colbrelli. And he's not a guy that anyone will want to take to the finish, even Wout van Aert. He... I mean, there's there's less climbing at the World Championships. It's different. It's a different kind of course, completely. Obviously, cl- closely resembling Brabantse Pale Flesh Brabanson, as it's also known. And he won that race, Colbrelli, a few years ago, 2017. He won that race, so um, he can certainly ride in that in that sort of terrain. But in total, I think there's three and a half thousand meters of climbing at the European Road Race, which was just 170 odd kilometers. The World Championships, I think, there's two and a half thousand meters of climbing just. It doesn't sound very much that, does it? It doesn't, but there are these short, you know, cobbled, short, short, sharp climbs. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's between, it's basically between a Tour of Flanders and a Liege Bastogne Liege. It's somewhere right in the middle, which is, uh, um, which is, uh, you know, is, is interesting. And I think Colbrelli is exactly the sort of rider that this race could could suit. Um, but we we shall see. But it was a it was an entertaining um, European title. Is it? devalued at all by the the timing which meant that a lot of riders were missing you know Van Aert, Mathieu van der Poel um, Julian Alaphilippe a lot of the riders who you would have fancied for it were were missing is that a problem for that the sort of prestige of that title do you think? I think it's been a, a bit of a surprise success I think it was the sixth edition wasn't it um, this year of the elite European road race and I think every year it's become more prestigious it obviously helped that well, it was a fantastic setting yesterday. Uh, Trento in north of Italy is a, is a city with quite a, a decent cycling heritage. A lot of good riders have come from near there. Matteo Trentini, in fact, who was pretty instrumental yesterday, is from just around the corner. Gianni Moscon was in the Italian team as well. He's from there. I think Gilberto Simoni, who is probably the Trento's most famous cycling son, was actually instrumental in designing the route. And he talked publicly about how it was a good idea for this not to try to mimic the world championship road race in in distance for the, that it doesn't need to be 250 kilometers or anything close to that um and we saw that yesterday didn't we 170 something kilometers and it was more than hard enough challenging enough and sort of inviting enough for opportunists and you know teams that wanted to be aggressive like the French for example. What about Evnepoel before we move on because it's been a, a curious season for him really hasn't it? If we think back to last autumn and that terrible crash in Il Lombardia and then his first race back was the Giro and there was a lot of expectation and very high hopes but uh, you know it, the first couple of weeks looked to be going pretty well but it, it unraveled uh, fairly quickly for him and since then he's won the belgium tour uh, he's been off to the olympics where he was ninth in the time trial you know n- not bad but perhaps not uh, fulfilling the sort of the, the hype around Evnepoel. and then he's uh, back to winning ways with the tour of denmark and a couple of races in belgium including the brussels classic um it's worth noting that at the Benelux Tour, just before the European Championships, he was struggling with a sort of stomach problem and some kind of uh, fever. He wasn't eating and or sleeping terribly well, and uh, he didn't start the fifth stage. But he'll be in the Belgian team for the World Championships, and I guess is the sort of the, the secondary um, focal point in that team. With Van Aert obviously being one of the uh, 
outstanding favourites, if not the outstanding favourite to win the race. But Evan Paul is a very handy rider to have as a sort of second option, isn't he? He's he's got one way of winning, hasn't he? Though Evan Paul, he has to get he, away on his own. He's a he's a rider. That's, that's it. I, I don't know about you, chaps, but he's a rider that I just cannot well I certainly can't pigeonhole him but you know I talked earlier in the episode in relation to Hater about one of the things we automatically do with any emerging talent is look for kind of analogues and and similar riders reference points from the past and if Paul sort of cycles in a language I don't really understand um, he he's a, an age that sort of defies conventional wisdom about when we think riders should be you know uh, able to win big races he, he rides in a way attacks in a way that I I don't think we've seen before in places we've not really we're not really accustomed to seeing people attack and um, consequently I, I find him quite sort of mind bending in a way. Yeah, it, yeah, I'm trying to think of it's, it's his build as well makes him an unusually effective time trialist for somebody who's that sort of compact and and light, you know, sixty kilos, um, but. Having him and Van Aert in the Belgian teams, you know, quite a good w- way of tackling that race, I would have thought, because Evan Paul is is the rider who goes from long range on his own. I think he has to go on his own, really. Um, and Van Aert's the guy who's there for the, the, the you know, any kind of sprint. If it, if it comes down to that. So it could, it could work very well for them. I mean, the other thing I think is unusual about him is, and I don't think this is really his fault and I don't think it's intentional, but he has this public persona in Belgium, which has almost been, um, well, it's almost been created for him and sort of superimposed on his, on him and his personality and his kind of aura that there is this sort of rock star vibe and aura about him and and there is a sort of drama that seems to follow him around um not quite in the manner of Mark Soler and and like I said I don't think a lot of the time I don't think he's courting it and I don't think he's doing anything particularly um outrageous or or disruptive but the way the Belgian media covers cycling is such that Every everything he does is scrutinised, and it is a story. And consequently, you do get this this sense of almost melodrama around him, which probably in the long term, you know, won't do him any favours. And, and as I say, it's not, it's not necessarily his fault. But it's it's again, it's another thing about him that we're not really used to in cycling. Um, you know, cycling is a sport where generally the protagonists, in the grand scheme of things, compared to footballers, and they are they are quite low profile, low key. Uh, you know, feet very much on the ground and um, that's probably that's a, a privilege that Remco hasn't really been afforded to, to sort of behave comport himself like that The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport Science in Sport fueled by Science Thanks very much indeed to Science and Sport for their support of the Cycling Podcast If you would like 25% off all your Science and Sport products Head over to scienceandsport.com and at the checkout, enter the discount code SISCP25. Somebody got in touch to ask whether the code was still working because it didn't seem to work for them. It is. If you have any problems with the code, uh, do drop us an email. Um, you know, periodically, um, these things don't work, but but it's still very much live and uh, should get you 25% off all your Science and Sport products. Yeah, it only doesn't work when Science and Sport are running some kind of um, discount on everything. So it, it may well have been um, that that was the case. Uh, it also doesn't work in conjunction with any other code. So you can't sort of get, um, I don't know, 30% off with Ian Boswell and then another 25% off with us. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> anyway, listen, uh, any other unfinished business from the Vuelta in particular, Daniel, um, we're all still, I guess, on tenterhooks wondering what what will happen to Miguel Angel Lopez, Superman, who left the, the Vuelta a day early. And you spoke to Sebe Unzue, the boss at Movistar on the, the final day of the Vuelta, who suggested that a decision would be taken very quickly about his future. And there have been reports linking him to a move back to Astana. Um, any any developments there that you've well, heard of? Well, Superman, or as Juan Carlos Bejerano, the Colombian journalist, told us on or suggested on the last day of the Vuelta when we spoke to him in Santiago, normal man. 
Norman Mann, uh, Miguel Angel uh, Lopez. Um, it, it does. It does seem very much as though. Um, well, we we got this sense from Unthuay on the last day. It, it seems as though that the the divorce from Movistar is in the post. Um, and it's well, there were even reports last week in El País, I think, that it was being worked on the finer details, and there was no great, no great desire on either part to carry on. Um, and I suppose you know, you think back to last year when he joined, and you know, all the memes about what he'd said about Movistar in the past and what he'd said a couple of years ago at the World Tour and called them, you know, the, the usual stupid idiots or the usual idiots. And it's all, I suppose it's all quite sad, really. I think not least because personally, I thought he was quite a good fit for that team. It's a team that has got, you know, it's got talent and Emmerich Mass has been pretty solid for them so far. I think twice, I think he was fifth in both Grand Tours that he did last year and then a sixth and a second this year. But... It felt like they needed something else. They needed, you know, uh, some sort of auxiliary to mass or, or an alternative to mass, uh, especially with Valverde inching ever closer to, to retirement. But it's, it sounds as though they're not going to have that because Superman, Normal Man, is on his way back to Astana. I mean, what did you make of it, um, Napalm, from, a, from afar? Well, I mean, there's so many things to it, really. I mean, I could, I could totally imagine um, myself having that sort of oh, know, crisis, um, and I, so I sort of see it from, you know, all the ways round, really. From the team's point of view, yes, you could say, well, look, your job now, mate, is to just ride on in and and get the best result you can, not just not just down tools because it's not worked out. I can see that point. The, the team are entitled to have that point of view. But again, an individual, you know, a rider who, you know, probably pushed to the brink of total frustration that everything just unraveled. You know, it was a spectacular unraveling, wasn't it? And I mean, sport is, is, um, it's, it's the sort of place where you know a rush of blood to the head can happen in the heat of the moment. You know, the people have this impression watching a bike race on TV. You know, they're they're just you know going up the mountain they're going along the valley road they're going down the descents and it's all you know we're quite divorced from it it looks pretty controlled um but we've no idea what's going on in you know in their minds and and you know the heart beating out of the chest with just a physical effort but also the um you know the the, the mental pressure of it um I, I did have a long chat with Max Chiandri at the Tour of Britain. He's a sort of a slight outsider in Movistar, isn't he? He talks about them almost as if they're a separate entity to him um, sometimes. I mean, he's been there a couple of seasons at least now, hasn't he? He was there, of course, when Carapaz won the Giro for them. And just a few things he said. I mean, he wouldn't really be drawn on Lopez, what he was like, what he's like as a as a rider. But he did say, "Oh, it's so easy." Just to, he he was saying he was travelling to the Tour of Britain and he was watching on his laptop, you know, in a ho- in a an airport um, hotel bar or whatever. And yeah, from from the um, from that perspective, it looks absolutely crazy. But you just don't know what's going on in with the rider and in the rider's minds and. Also talking to Max, I got a sense of just what a, a sort of traditional um, outfit Movistar are. And I could completely understand if they did let him go because they just want to keep the, the boat steady moving forwards. I mean, one little thing that Max said was that uh, inside the truck at the Tour of Poland, there's a, uh, you know, a, a, a cabinet with all the tools in. Um, this is the mechanics truck. And inside that cabinet, uh, in one of the drawers there's an immaculate set of Campagnolo tools from the 1990s and when you open the case of that um, tool kit inside just slipped in the top is a sheet of paper with Miguel Indurain's measurements bike measurements just written on it in pen and that's just been kept in there for 30 plus years you know um uh, just in case he comes just in back. Just case he comes back. I mean, there's a spot on the team potentially next year. I don't know, but I, I just think we. I'm quite critical sometimes of Movistar. Um, you know their tactics and just the the fact that the, um, you know that they do seem to be quite old school, um, perhaps stuck in the past in some ways. Um, but I also think that they're just a 
they're sort of a, a, a Spanish kind of, I don't know, uh, what are they, a galleon, a Spanish galleon that's just, you know, yeah, it's made out of 1970s wood or, you know, 1980s wood, but it's still a seaworthy vessel and they just want to, they just want to keep it going in the way that they want to keep it going. And I suppose the grown-up solution now that... is if, if, if Lopez is not happy with the team and the team are not happy with Lopez, then, then find a solution that's best for all parties. Um, but I, I really wasn't, I probably, a few years ago, I would have been in the camp of like, well, that's a, that's a completely unreasonable downing of tools by Lopez. Um, but I don't know, maybe I'm just mellowing a bit as I get older, I think. If, if he's entitled to stop the race, and but with that come consequences. There are a lot of unknowns here as well. There's this unspoken or rumoured subplot about South American riders and the history of South American riders on uh, Movistar and Carapaz having left under a bit of a cloud and uh, Nairo Quintana before him as well. And, you know, in the last week I've noticed there's been, there's been stuff on social media. I think a Colombian politician, it might be some kind of MP or senator, has, has been tweeting about or has been suggesting that... Um, Ivan Souza, who is moving from Ineos to Movistar, is making a terrible mistake because, you know, he'll go the same way as Superman. And we, we don't really know that. We, you know, we, we pick up certain things. I mean, I've mentioned the example of how my perception at races this year of the way Superman was sort of being um, sort of thrown in front of the media when mass it felt to me as though mass was being protected a, a lot more but you know it might be that superman lopez is much more comfortable um with media duties than than mass was so again yeah a lot of a lot of conjecture but it seems at least that both both parties are fairly are fairly satisfied that they don't want to carry on together but they are a team mentioning injury in there is interesting because they are a team that's been around for a long time, but they've gone through these, they've had these dynasties, haven't they, of, of great continuity through riders who were just rock solid and steady and, and consistent injuring. And then Valverde, um, you know, Delgado, but then injuring was, gave them, you know, al almost a decade of, of of consistent reliable success and the team was built around him and then Valverde was the the talisman certainly for another decade or so and I guess uh, Mass is maybe more in that mold of being uh, a kind of uh, you know becoming quite a consistent performer and maybe maybe quite low maintenance as well certainly that's the impression that he's someone quite eager to please. Um, so who who knows? I mean, uh, but is he is he the guy that's going to get them the results of, of this similar caliber to to Valverde and injury? And I don't know. Yeah, and, and you know, you talk about the evolution of the team and uh, Lionel. You compare them to some kind of a galleon. Well, at times it's been when they have tried to pivot, it has been a bit like turning around an oil tanker. And you know, in that vein, in the last week or in the piece in El País that I mentioned, um, Unsue was quoted about. One of their new signings next year for next year is an 18-year-old, um, Javier Romo, who, well, he, he's the sort of latest off the conveyor belt of these baby phenoms. Um, you know, Juan Ayuso is the other one who's already been picked up. They, they sort of missed the, well, they missed the boat there because he signed for UAE um, and has already started his professional career. But yeah, Unzue sort of even in this piece saying, well, I'm not, he's not a big believer in this trend. He's not a big subscriber to this theory that, you know, riders can be, should be thrown in at 19 or 20 years old, but sort of almost to cover his back just in case he's wrong about that. He, he has decided to... To, to get with that that fashion and uh, and at least pick up one of these very promising Spanish teenagers. And um, yeah, he's going to be turning pro next year with them. Pachi Vila said a similar thing though, Daniel, at the Vuelta, didn't he? Where he said that, you know, there were certain riders who, um, who would just mature a little bit more slowly and gradually put mass in that category. And, uh, you know, separately to this, I was speaking to an agent the other day who's saying that, you know, teams are all looking now for 19, 20-year-olds and the riders who are 22, 23 looking for a second contract are really struggling. They're the riders who are being discarded at the moment and there could be a, a mass among them, somebody who is a bit 
a bit of a slower developer. You can imagine a, an orderly queue um, starting to form behind that lad at the Tour of Britain, you know, um, sort of a, a, a gaggle of agents shuffling up a, on the pavement alongside him. When oh, he's, he's, already, he's already signed with UAE for uh, the next <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> that, 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 uh, that, fantastic that rem- joke stealing there, Richard. Uh, I think, that, I think yeah, I've well, debuted that one off, off mic, but you, you, you have Actually, you have the... <laughs> But a, a little, another little postscript from. But on that note, you know, James Shaw is somebody who we've we've followed quite closely. Um, has struggled to get another contract with a big team since he lost his place at Lotus Sudal after his first contract. He signed exceptionally young for them. I think he was nineteen when he joined Lotus Sudal, so he was discarded at twenty-one. And he's kept plugging away. And the rumours are that he he will rejoin the World Tour next year after several years gap now. But he's ridden well whenever he's had an opportunity this year, and he rode well again at the the Tour of Britain. Amazing to see him up in that company on some of the harder stages. Just a little update on James Shaw. Wheeler Flitz, the very well-informed Dutch news website, reported that James Shaw is joining EF Education Nippo next year. We knew he'd signed for World Tour team. It was rumoured during the Vuelta that that team would be EF. Wheeler Flitz now saying that that is indeed the case. And James Shaw will be stepping up once more with EF Education Nippo. That reminds me, Rich, before we go, there was another clip of a of a junior budding cycling champion that went viral, Mark Cavendish's son, Casper, who's about three years old, and he's a huge fan of Wout Van Aert, and he met Wout Van Aert. Uh, Mark took him to meet Wout Van Aert before, was it the penultimate stage? And Wout gave him a, a signed jersey. But all I could, when I was watching that clip, Rich, this might be lost on you, but I think Napalm will understand um, all I could hear in in the back of my head was Roy Keane's voice going, absolute nonsense. Why is he giving, why is he meeting, why is he going to meet his rival? Absolute rubbish, look at that. And sure enough, Wout van Aert then beat Cavendish in the sprint that day. And um, yeah. yeah, so there uh, yeah, you go. On a similar note, I mean, the young <laughs> young lad Xander Graham, who was taken on to uh, Visma bus, um, I noticed his Instagram account, which has taken off, but he calls himself Xander Pohl, Van Aert's great rival, of course. So yeah, Van Aert apparently had him in a headlock and made him promise, <laughs> made him promise to uh, renounce his uh, his uh, favoritism for Van der Poel and switch it to him instead. Not sure that's happened. Anyway, we should wrap things up. It's the World Championships next week. We've got lots of episodes coming out next week. I'll I'll be heading over there for the the time trials and then back for the road races. Um, and I think next week's episode will be out. On about Thursday, Lionel, is that the plan? Um, you're catching me on the hop there without the so, schedule open. What Femina, why is that? Femina oh, should be on Tuesday. Yeah. Femina on Tuesday. Life in the Peloton on Wednesday. And the regular episode on Thursday. That's right. There we go. And then another service course on Friday. So something almost every day next something week. Something for everyone. Hopefully. Well, that's all for this week. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you, chaps. Thank you, Lionel. Thanks, chaps.